I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Most people are, you know, kind of... Uh wryly amusing and if they're willing to kind of be vulnerable enough to show their humor um which is part of being vulnerable enough to be to show their authenticity then um then they can be funny welcome to the humorology podcast with me paul barros and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business politics sport and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun in business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast has built a career on being a compassionate, creative and comedic conservative. As a powerful political point man for Prime Minister John Major and party leader William Hague, he progressed his party using his penchant for punchlines. In 2013, he was made a member of the House of Lords, where he sits as a conservative. He has served as the former executive editor of The Times and still writes quick-witted, award-winning commentary columns on everything from politics to football. As a prolific journalist, he has been named Political Commentator of the Year on four separate occasions. More recently, he has served as a political pundit and prominent presenter with a reputation as the Lord of Leaving Audiences Learning and Laughing. Danny Finkelstein, welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Paul, thank you so much for that introduction. I I, I sound absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to hear myself. <laughs> well, you are absolutely brilliant, Danny, and uh, I, I can't wait to get on with hearing more about what you've got to tell us, because you've had such an extraordinary life. Um, I know you're passionate about trying to help people change their minds and be more flexible and, if you like, see other people's positions. Um, I heard you once say that you've uh, got to make the psychological cost to people of changing their position easier to pay. Does humour help loosen people's entrenched positions? Yes, it does, because they, uh, you know, because liking is actually a large part of agreeing with people, uh, as is a feeling of of sort of uh, being 
having something in common with other people. But actually, I, I, to be quite honest, I don't really think that is the reason why I use hu humour. You you make it sound a very conscious process. I, I think it's just sort of genetic a little bit. Um, my mother, uh, in particular, was always responding to uh, to to everything with a joke. And I guess I just inherited that from her. Well, it's very interesting because when I was doing research ab about you, um, your your mother and your father were refugees and, and had very, very difficult lives. I think your mother was in Belson, your father was an exile in Siberia. Did they talk about how they coped with those situations? Was humour part of that coping strategy? It really was. Um, I, I do remember going down to uh, once uh, Ronald Reagan went to uh, to Bitburg, which was a cemetery in Germany as part of a state visit. And it was discovered there was some SS officers buried there uh, and it became a massive political problem for Reagan in the States. And so he decided he was also going to go and visit Belson. And I remember um, hearing this on the radio and I went down the stairs to my mom she was she had her back to me she was washing up and I said oh mom I've just heard on the radio Ronald Reagan's going to go to Belson and without turning around she said so what I've been and that was very <laughs> typical of her um she had a sort of uh, her favorite joke was uh, apart from that Mrs Lincoln how did you enjoy the theatre um because <laughs> she believed that a sense of proportion was um was very important and my father yeah my father too um and I, I just it was I'm just researching a book on their lives. And I remembered when I was a child that um, my father explained about the journey they took to be reunited with his father, who'd been in the Gulag, he joined the Polish Free Army. It's a very perilous journey that linked those people up, but they had a soldier with them who bribed their way onto the train. And I remember as a kid, he told me that it was a perfume that called the breath of Stalin that they used. And I actually took him seriously i thought that that was a true that was true um and it was only when i was as a, i even may have told this story as an adult i think um to to great laughs at a big at a big reception once and it was only when i was researching it that i thought it was obviously vodka right uh, and um he was just joking so yes they did deal with their experiences um with humor to some extent yeah well, it's interesting because my father was a Hungarian refugee and uh, at 17 years old, he was in the Second World War. Um, uh, originally, I, you know your history, but in 44, the Hungarians changed and supported Hitler and all the Hungarians hated Hitler. So they threw down their weapons and joined the Allies. And so, you know, and my father has been in... Uh, you know, refugee camps, concentration camps, and in 56, you know, had to up sticks and leave. Um, and he was always of that same mind that humour was all they couldn't take away from you because they took everything else. And so it became a valuable commodity. Do you think, you talked about it being genetic. Do you, do you think that that everybody who has people who understand the value of it uses it in their lives when, when you talked about the role that political jokes has played in my life and it's a slight embarrassment to me because you know you like to um to be thought of as very sage individual when you're called up by uh you know the chancellor of the exchequer or the prime minister's office uh and um they want to know whether you've got a joke it's slightly deflating <laughs> <laughs> But 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 seriously, um, I, I do. I, I so I I think it's something that you kind of either that is just a way of thinking or it isn't. 
but I do think it's a sort of quite humanizing way. If you, particularly if you accept that you yourself are a bit ridiculous, um, that it does prevent you, I think, from the worst um, monstros monstrosities of ego. If you, if you uh, kind of understand the human condition as being kind of intrinsically funny. So was the young Danny naturally funny i mean was he mischievous was it what was he like what no whether it, i don't know whether i'm funny now and and certainly no actually that's a very interesting thing i don't think so so i think that um the confidence to be humorous is uh, is interesting it's very person dependent right you 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 have to have a degree of confidence to be funny in front of somebody uh and um I, you know, when you don't have that, when someone makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, you might not so easily make a joke because it could go wrong. Um, and uh, I'm definitely my funniest when the person doesn't do that. You know, it doesn't put does put you at your ease, and you feel you can make a joke either at other people's expense or even at theirs. And um, you have to have, yeah, you have to have confidence that they can take that, and not all people can take that equally. Uh, uh, but as I've grown older, of course, you grow in confidence. And so you're able to be, well, you know, I say funny. I, I don't I hesitate to ascribe that to myself. But you are able to attempt at humour uh, with um, with other people. Well, it's interesting you talk about that. That's this symbiotic process of humour and, you know, uh, and feeling comfortable. But first of all, you have to be the person who, uh, I don't know, offers the 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 humor olive leaf or something don't you in order to start that process do you do that any of that consciously or is everything now just unconscious competence no it's it's un, it's pretty much unconscious just the way that i am and i know that i'm sitting in a meeting or a leader conferences at the times so i mean i can never resist making some stupid joke about whatever we're talking about sometimes not 100% appropriate and I'm absolutely certain you know how people get cancelled um, for some terrible thing that they do or say and in my case it will certainly not be um, some sort of crass opinion of mine it'll be a it'll be a joke definitely uh, although I'm, I don't tend to I don't tend to like um, either crude humor or you know it's very unlikely to be a um, a joke which has like a racial overtone that would never happen sexist joke or a homophobic joke and i never that wouldn't be the case it'll just be some sort of stupidly inappropriate thing that i say well yeah but but isn't humor all about finding the, the pushing things to the limit a little, yeah, a little bit, bit anyway yeah you you do have to to have you do, yes, it is. Yeah, you have to have a sort of a uh, little bit of uh, an idea for where the edge is, definitely. And I, I just always remember my when it was very typical of my mum. I said her great sense of humour was her sense of humour was, you know, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln had you enjoy the theatre, but she also had this kind of idea of that that joke I said to you about Belson that was typical. And uh, when my father died, my mother was my mother and my father had a great relationship and. My mother was devastating when my father died, but I do remember going, I'd been to see Chelsea versus Norwich and um, my father died while I was there. Uh, he had been very, very ill. It wasn't that surprising that he died. I came, my mother was at the hospice with my father's body in the room. <laughs> I went in um, and, uh, you know, she said one or two words about dad dying. And then she said, what was the score? Right. And the, and the, and the timing of it, and 
just the situation of her mind at that moment was just um, exquisite. It was like just about all right. And also she was the biggest, you know, she was the great mourner of my father's demise. So it was, it was all right. And it's very, that was very typical of her. So she just filled, felt the, uh, how far you could go with something at that moment. She knew it intuitively. It's a dangerous world to do that. My father died uh, six years ago while I was um, doing a conference in uh, the South of France. And uh, it was a horrible shock. It was a, a heart attack. And I was in a little bit of shock. And I went out uh, the next evening um, just to eat because I was waiting to see how I was going to get back and uh, do that. And a friend of mine did one of the most extraordinary jokes I'd ever had. Uh, a woman at the table very sympathetically said, where were you when it happened? And I said, actually, I found out that I was actually speaking on stage when he died. And my friend without missing a beat said, that makes two of you. It's <laughs> a brilliant joke. It is a brilliant joke, but the, the danger in that was I could have done that. I definitely could have done that. And that's all about your friend probably knew you quite well. He knew that Very you, well. yeah, he knew that you would think that was funny. Uh, judged his moment, right? If you did get that wrong, that's a disaster, that joke, but it's not a disaster. It's brilliant, memorable joke. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm very jealous of that. I'd love to have made that joke. <laughs> well, it, it was perfect, actually. And, and guess what? You, I remember it like it was yesterday. And it was, strangely, when you have a good relationship and when you get it, it's strangely appropriate to do something to break... Of course. That state. Of course it is, um, yeah. you, you were talking about um, uh, politicians and humour, and you've been around so many politicians and humour. I know that you've been a member of the Labour Party, you've been in the SDP for <laughs> like nine years, and Conservatives, you know where the gag, uh, the joke's going, but who, is there a party that is naturally funnier? Oh, uh, no. no. Oh, come I mean, on. First of all, no, because first of all, to be, although you said I was in the Labour Party, it was like I was 16 years old and it was sort of short period before I joined the SDP. So I couldn't okay. really claim, I couldn't really claim a great familiarity with it. No, I don't think so. I think humour, I mean, look, there are some politicians who are naturally brilliant at telling a joke, using humour. They use humour in meetings and, uh, you know, and when you're with them, it's funny. And there are some people that kind of aren't. Uh, and um, uh, I don't think that's a, a party political thing. And I've never got this thing, you know, um, one of the things that used to uh, drive me crazy at university was Tories used to say, you know, the problem with the left people on the left is they don't have a sense of humour. And that is obviously utterly ridiculous, right? What it meant was that they weren't willing to put up with crass comments that were sexist or racist. It wasn't they didn't have a sense of humour. So I, I don't, I never agree with that. No. But do you think now, in, in the current state of politics, charisma and humour, if we put them together, are essential to, to win, as it were? Yeah, I, do, I think that's always been the case to whichever audience you can, you can appeal to. So, um, you know, in the, in, until the modern broadcast era, it was who could be charismatic in the House of Commons. Um, and um, 
probably before that it was who could be charismatic to the king um and um now it's who can be charismatic to a wider audience maybe use social media in a in a creative way so the medium always changes um and humor's always had its um always had its place although obviously it does change you know what what you can read sort of old copies of punch and they're not funny at all and i do i remember that uh you know uh, the private eyes used to have this joke where they said they people you would send if you sent them a, one of those signs of the times and um they, they sent back to a friend of mine uh they sent uh dear mr x i won't name it dear mr x uh, thank you very much for sending us your sign of the times as you will probably have appreciated by now this isn't this wasn't remotely funny may i suggest that you send it to punch but actually when you read punch some of that humor actually is in fact very funny but not if you read a hundred and you know a hundred years old some of the jokes are just completely bewildering how on earth anybody could have found them funny they're so leaden well you you say i we were interviewing um your old colleague william haig and uh and william was saying that actually margaret thatcher wasn't funny and, uh, you know, it was quite hard to give her a gag uh, for her to understand even. Uh, Did he tell you about the Monty Python thing? Yes. Yeah. So that's, and that is absolutely true, right? Uh, John Whittingdale, um, John Whittingdale used to, uh, you, you, you know, told that story about her and he was like devoted to her. Yeah, so I understand. She really didn't get it. So it said about Theresa May that she wasn't funny. And I, and actually Theresa um, wasn't great at telling a joke. She could, she once or twice did some really brilliant things when she uh, thanked Jeremy Corbyn for mansplaining her. She delivered that brilliantly. But what she could do was get a joke. If you made a joke to Theresa, she would laugh, right? She wasn't humorless. Uh, at all, even though she wasn't brilliant at telling jokes. So some people can get them, but they can't tell them. Well, that's very interesting, because all as part of the Humorology project, I always say it's actually being part of the process. And I think being a good audience is as important as being able to tell a joke. So being an easy laugher and being warm and receptive to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. is Is also enticing and and you know, makes you part of the team. We have friends, you know, who aren't all great gag tellers, but will laugh easily and are very welcome because, you know, all of us who tell gags need an audience, don't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. <laughs> tell me a true funny story about something that's happened to you, Dan. Well, do you know, that is the worst question that anybody can ask. Do, do you not find this? When you're asked, when you're asked to give a to give a leaving speech for somebody, and I used to, there was one point in my life when I was director of the Conservative Research Movement after the 2001 general election, after the 1997 general election, and uh, it was the worst Conservative result since 1832. And as you can imagine, I had to do quite a lot of leaving speeches. Some people who were leaving on purpose and some people who, um, who as, it, so, as it were, we left. Um, and, um, that, I, and you always have to think of something funny to say about this person, right? And what were you going to, even the person who had, who had, um, who had applied for a job as a, as a 
researcher for the Labour Party giving me and Gillian Shepherd, the Conservative Education Secretary, his references. You know, what were you supposed to say at his leaving day? So I, I always found it, if I say something, the funniest thing that ever happened to you. And, and the worst thing is, it, funny thing is one thing, right? But when someone says, that's the funniest thing that ever happened to you, and then you tell this story, and you think, that, that is the funniest thing that's ever happened to you? You're 58. <laughs> Um, but um, at the beginning of speeches, I often um, thank the audience for inviting me. And I note the fact that I've got a sort of um, uh, reasonable size audience and it's quite convenient to get there. And I tell them this is true, that I went once to give a speech in Norwich. And from where I live, it takes something in the region of five hours to get to Norwich University. You have to get to the train station, wait for the train. It takes several hours to get there. And I was giving a speech, right? So I, I thought, okay, I'll go a voluntary speech in Tiles, not being paid or anything. Go all the, get all the way there, uh, five hours. Open the door, and there are literally two people. And one of them is the person that had invited me, right? Um, uh, and the, the other person's like, what do I do? So I bet I thought I better give him a talk, right? I sort of sit down and I do a kind of slightly embarrassed version of what I was supposed to say anyway. And um, and I, at the end of it, I said, would you like to join? This is what I was there for. Would you like to join the Young Social Democrats? And he said, well, I would, but it would interfere with the terms of my parole. <laughs> that genuinely happened. Then I had to stack all the chairs and go home again. Five hours. Oh, my God. Well, that's wonderful. Is everyone potentially funny or, I mean, is it just a no? I can see you already going, no, no. Oh, I, so it, Shall I tell you how I found that out? Right. When you when you work for politicians, um, you know, I mean, as, a, as not work for them, but, you know, kind of work with them and help them with jokes and stuff like that. Um, you uh, sometimes they can absolutely uh, brilliantly tell a joke and sometimes um they really really can't tell a joke and um i, I and if you don't realize that you can have a disaster and i and i i'm, I'm not going to name the people because it's not fair to them and i'm always trying to you know i've tried to respect their their kind of confidences but i've worked for one or two politicians where the jokes come out as a horrendous insult to the person they were engaged with engaged with in the commons was one once or twice was john prescott and and i and i you know just watch between your fingers and actually one of the worst things that uh, happened to me um uh, during the time of writing was when i was working for the conservative party and one of the important things is people have to be willing to laugh with you and at that point they were laughing at the conservative party not with it this was before the 97 general election uh, they were either laughing at the conservative party or they were furious with it but what they weren't doing was laughing with it uh, and uh, we wrote a satire of the labor manifesto it was a very of it was a lay, satire of labor's kind of policy document it was a very ill-conceived idea and i think now I'm more politically sophisticated years later, I'd realised that that wouldn't work. But at the time, I thought it was amusing. But instead of just issuing it and letting people read it and think, actually, this is quite a good satire um, of their proposals, um, Brian Mawinney, uh, the chairman of the Conservative Party, found it so funny, he decided that he and Michael Heseltine were going to read it out, which involved Michael reading the straight bits and Brian reading the funny bits. Right. Well, Brian, God bless him, he's just recently died and I loved him a lot, actually. Uh, but um, he was not the greatest verbal wit, let's put it that way. 
And I sat at the back of the room. And at the end of this conference, Michael White said, um, Chairman, I'm wondering, do you think this is the worst press conference ever given by a political party? And I could just, I, it was, I wish the ground could have swallowed me up. Was, they were all my lines. Nobody had laughed at all, obviously. And then I thought I'm going to get a story in tomorrow's paper, Britain's unfunniest man with a big picture. That was so, yeah, the answer to your question, that was a long way of saying absolutely no way is it the case that everybody is equally amusing so so then why are people so delusional because i i've never read anybody uh, or or seen anybody or heard anybody say i don't have a sense of humor you know yeah on on their dating profiles everybody says good sense of humor you know what is it, is it a bad delusion? sense of humor on your dating profile um well, um, first of all, everybody, people find different things funny, but we're all delusional in different ways. The cognitive biases we live with are are, um, are huge, right? And I know that myself. I, I was doing a piece um, last week, which was all about how people's political motivations are um, are fundamentally about self-interest and economic. We just haven't, often can't work it out for ourselves. And while I was kind of thinking about it, I thought to myself, you know what, my politics, I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm a social liberal and a relative economic liberal. Um, and I thought, you know, as a, as a, basically as a Jew living in Pina with a master's degree, working in a top rate tax paying job I'm actually a cliche right and a lot of the time you don't but you don't realize that about yourself you think all of your political views are nothing to do with your demographic uh, qualities so you we're all fool ourselves a lot of the time you'd never be able to live if you didn't uh, so I can't blame people for thinking they're funny and not being so uh, that cognitive bias do you think is what drives everybody because we have to be delusional otherwise we'll be suicidal yeah. by the way the other thing uh, occurs which is some people well, so, you know, I said to you, the most embarrassing thing is thinking that you're um, funny and uh, not uh, that the, uh, the most embarrassing thing is being asked to think of a funny story. So sometimes I'm a peer. This is probably one of those occasions. People tune in in the expectation of humour that is not then uh, an expectation that is realised. Let's put it that way. Uh, and um, I do the news quiz occasionally. And uh, when I do that, um, I always think, oh my God, I'm supposed to be funny on this. And um, the worst thing at the end, you, usually I'm quite fortunate that you get some people who who say that was funny. Some people, and that I'm not sure whether this is an insult or um, or not, um, it, when they say it was unexpectedly funny. Um, uh, but then there's always those people who say, um, I didn't expect him to be funny, and he wasn't. And those those are the ones that you think, yeah, I knew it all along. <laughs> you know, you kind of know. So uh, we all, as if you didn't engage in a degree of um, of self delusion, you'd never live, would you? Well, you'd never do anything either, would you? Really, you'd never come no. out of your comfort zone and everything. It's it's interesting. We had um, uh, Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project um, in America on the program, and he was saying. And I think this is good advice for anybody who has to go uh, and talk on something thing is when uh, he went to do Bill Maher's show, they, the producer came up to him and said, you didn't write any jokes, did you? And he went, of course not. I'm not a comedian. He goes, great, because some people come on here and think they have to write a joke. Really, the whole point of it is that you actually just relax and be yourself and 
if you're going to be funny, it will come out. And and I think that's the hardest thing is you can't, you know, you know, when you have to, when people write a joke in a speech and you've done thousands of them and you, you, you go, you deliver the comedy line and then it dies on its ass. Mm. And then you have to say, but seriously, you know. Well, that's completely correct. And sometimes you, uh, sometimes you tell a, you write a comedy line and it works brilliantly. And sometimes the same principle will produce a joke and it won't work at all. It's context dependent. A lot yeah. of the time. And so, I mean, really for our listeners, it's about listening to the audience and being in the moment, isn't it? I mean, because um, the news well, quiz... I've written a lot of jokes hard... that, yeah, I've written a lot of jokes that are delivered by other people, and then you've got to to do that. You've got to kind of think about the context they're in and the audience they've got. Uh, one of the things that were... Conf party conference jokes are particularly perilous. There are a number of reasons for this. First of all, um, they, the audience is very hard to judge. You can't judge whether it's going to be full or empty, a half em an empty audience won't laugh at the joke at all, that a full audience will will very much laugh at. Secondly, if you've got an empty audience, but a group full of journalists who are listening to the minister make a speech, um, they'll, they're bound to find it particularly unfunny, right? Because they, partly it's because um, the jokes is kind of often partisan and at the expense of another political party, and quite rightly, while a, that that's funny to a conservative audience is not funny to anybody else <laughs> and so you can it can be a total disaster and sometimes it's better not to not to try to make them i think but it's hard in advance to work out that that's you know that that's the case planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, have you had the situation, because uh, doing what I do as a psychologist, I get brought in to help with people's speeches, but, you know, as you're more on the writing side, I'm more on the performance side and, you know, the, the psychological side of getting them ready. And uh, have you had the situation where you've had to talk people out of doing a joke because you know it's going, they can't deliver it? Um I have, yeah, I can't, I have, yeah, I have a few times. I've said, don't, don't, if you have to reach for that joke, just don't use it. And, and actually, that was particularly the case with Theresa May, who could, she didn't have to be talked into it, you know, talked out of it. She wasn't kind of gagging to tell, but it was sometimes she'd say, look, use this if it comes, if 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 the ball comes very close to you, you can hit it, but don't reach for this. Because in Prime Minister's Questions, you, you, you can do a funny joke, which only really works if the other person's doing something, saying something or behaving in a certain way, then you can engage with it. And if and if it doesn't come close to you, you can't and you mustn't, because then the joke really creaks then and you've got to be very, very careful. Yeah, I, I, I agree. We had Alistair Campbell on the show and he was saying uh, that, uh, and you were probably partly responsible for this, the, the, the one thing that really scared them was William Hague at Prime Minister's Questions because they could he could destroy them with humour and they had to get a whole... I tell you what, I'm deep, I was deeply involved in that. Quite a lot of those gags were... I mean, they were team things, myself, George Osborne and William Hague, but they were things that I was involved in producing and um and i remember that in the sunday times one time one week um a comedian i won't name who that is because it's not fair but a, com a, a completely external comedian was um credited with all of my jokes it was like a long list of them that were clearly been funny enough to make the newspaper but they they were credited it was the only time because you do them so that William Hague will be credited with them. You don't want to be credited with them yourself. That's not that's not the point. And in any case, they were a collegiate effort. They never want just one person. And they wouldn't work, as I discovered sometimes with other people, wouldn't have worked without William. Um, so it was incredibly annoying to discover other people to be other people uh, being credited with, uh, with, with writing them. You don't... Uh, you, so you become a bit proprietorial about them, but, uh, but they I, depend I, I, a little... They depend um, a lot on the context. William was um, was brilliant at the jokes. Uh, he knew the timing of them. He knew the tone. Um, he 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 never he had the confidence not to use them. One of his rules were, um, you know, we only use them if they're absolutely certainly dead, definitely funny, right? And we wouldn't use one that wasn't maybe only 75% likely to get a laugh, to be 100% funny. And one of the ways that we used to judge that is, do people laugh when you tell it to them, right? So, and this is my test normally, right? The joke is not, um, did you think that was funny, theoretically, right? Um, it's, does, when I tell you that story, do you, do you laugh? And then we had a joke once where we had a sort of place line in the speech, which was, um, don't book it, Robin Cook it. We knew that it was not funny, right? Theoretically, and you didn't laugh, right? Correctly. Um, 
But some, somehow, in the context of that moment when he'd been going around the world annoying people, every time we said that line to people, they, they fell about laughing. No one could tell you what it meant. Um, and um, if I told you that it was supposed to be funny, they wouldn't think it was funny. But when he used it in the speech, it brought the house down. Right? But and um, And... That's the only test, but you can sometimes do a joke that's theoretically funny, but there's no point for somebody sitting there and going, you know what, that was actually very witty. That works in writing, but it doesn't work when you're delivering it out loud. Well, well that's the thing, and, it, it, and that's where the instinct for comedy comes in. Uh, we were talking to Joe Brand, who I've known for many years because we used to work at the comedy store together, and we were talking about the fact that actually when you do a heckle put-down, it actually doesn't have to be the funniest thing ever. It just has to be timed right. And that's what that sounds like. Don't just book it, Robin, cook it. Is just, it has a rhythm. And if you deliver it in the right moment, people Correct. will react. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's, again, the, the, the tip for humour in that is being able to be in the moment and listen yeah. And also, if you're preparing a joke, test it. And the only test that matters is when you read it out to somebody, did they actually laugh? Not whether they looked at it, smiled and then said, yeah, that's funny. Use it. And don't, or they laughed and said, no, that's not funny. Don't use it. If they laugh, they laugh. And in the yeah. moment when you're telling the speech, when you're telling the joke in the speech, all that matters is does the audience laugh, right? Well, uh, because uh, humour is a, a, this strange thing whereby it's an involuntary action, Correct. isn't it? And, and so, the, you know, that's why uh, comedians are more valued than anyone else is because they, they make you do an involuntary action and which it, it just changes your state. So it's good. What would the world be like without humour? Oh, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I do... I, I do think it. some of humour is not taking yourself or all the situations um, too seriously. And I think that, therefore, the world would be... The world would take itself and all the situations that were involved in it more seriously than they deserve. It would be, it would be too... Um, it would be a sort of form of arrogance in some ways um, that, that felt that we were... Uh, that everything that we were engaged in was of such importance that we couldn't undermine it in any way by laughing at it. Um, so I think humour has an important role in, certainly for me anyway, in establishing that we're all a bit ridiculous and so are all the situations that we're in. Um, and um, also that we only live for a short period and we may as well enjoy it while we're here and I think if we didn't have humour we'd forget all those things and that we'd lose a lot. So you have a very self-deprecating uh, way of of in of <laughs> being, well no I mean that you have a, to there's quite a, a lot to deprecate. So. <laughs> <laughs> no but I mean what that in supposed, the, in what are you supposed to do if you're sort of fat Jew living in Pinner? You're laughing <laughs> No, but it, I think that that's because I, I know that having talked to a lot of people in politics and in broadcasting, that you are pretty much universally liked. So, uh, and I think that's because you don't take yourself too seriously. And what we're trying to do for our listeners is give them 
tools that they can actually take away and, and go. And, and do you think that that ability to self-deprecate, to not take yourself too serious, is actually a valuable tool in business? I do think being, well, actually going one step back, I do think being liked is an underrated thing. I mean, it's kind of you to say that I'm liked and that's it's very gratifying to hear that. I, I'm, if you say it, I'm not going to tell you, call you a liar, but I didn't, I wouldn't necessarily claim that for myself, but I'm, I'm really happy about that. But the, the, um, because I think it's a very, very important thing, right? I think that um, it's important as part of persuasion. I think it's important intrinsically because it suggests that you bear yourself with a, in a kind of appropriate way and realise you're not the only person around and try and fit in with other people in some ways. It can be a weakness because sometimes in politics you have to be tough and make tough decisions and choices. And if I, sometimes I see people doing acts of leadership and I wonder whether I'll have that sort of courage, which does sometimes lead you to not be liked um but um i think you can always do do even quite hard things in likable and dislikable words i tell you an example of that is is rishi sunak actually he was a very likable person i think it's part of his political strength and his strength as a leader um so i think that um yes it's important to be liked and humor definitely falls from that it's hard to um find somebody funny that you find intrinsically completely unsympathetic you don't you know even the comedians who kind of play off let's take larry david for example who yeah. plays off this kind of misanthropy you sort of there's an you've got to kind of like him enough to find the things that he finds absurd and kicks against funny and you've got to empathise with him to that degree. So I, I think it's underneath it is empathy and being liked is an incredibly important part of business. It mustn't detract you from making tough choices and tough decisions. And you can't you can't expect that everybody will agree with you. And, you know, in politics, I've obviously made choices. And as a result of it, I'm aware people, you know, dislike those choices very passionately and find them incomprehensible sometimes. Uh, and you have to still have the courage of your convictions. But I think you can do those in likable or dislikable ways. No, I, I, I completely agree. I think if you start from a point where you have rapport with people, if you ha have something that you have to deliver that is upsetting, um, it, it starts from that point whereby you're a decent bloke and you're only doing, you know, this because you believe in it rather than um, you're a disagreeable bloke and I always knew you were going to do something awful, you, you bastard, you know. I just remember, um, I mean, a moment at a Conservative Party conference where uh, John Redwood was making a speech and he has many admirable intellectual qualities, but he's not going to be a comedian as his second career and he um he gave a, a speech about the arts and one of it was um uh step forward ian mccartney and walk tall among the men now ian mccartney was a labor the labor body chairman and i think the spokesman the, on the other side from john redwood on arts or sports or something and um he he was very short right uh ian mccartney uh and i can, there was a very very empty hall like I was one of, and I could just remember one person moving a chair you know uncomfortably and somebody else coughed and there was dead silence but John Ray waited for the laugh 
to come, right? And this was a number of things that all come together. One, empty hall. No one was ever going to joke on it. Secondly, not intrinsically very funny. Thirdly, no one knew who Ian McCartney was, right, in that audience, right? And I just had to explain to you, kind of ruins the joke. So, therefore, no one knew that he was short. And finally, if you were there and you did know that he was short and you knew who Ian McCartney was, um, it was just horrible, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, right? So, you... you, you it kind of combined all of the things that you try and avoid uh, in a in a in a in a joke. I just remember it as being quite an uncomfortable moment, but in its own grisly way, actually pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, if you if you write just nothing, I just remember David Hunt, who was I really really like and admire a lot, um, and uh, is a sort of humane guy and and very intelligent guy. Um, but he told this joke, and it involved. Um, Labour not having any principles, and he brought out a bag, a plastic bag from the shop principles, and he opened. He said, "Labour haven't got any principles," and he got this shopping bag out, looked in it, and threw it over his shop. Said it's empty and threw it over his shoulder. Right, and for me, because it was so bad, it was absolutely hilarious. Nothing was funnier than that. So nothing is funnier than a than a joke that flops absolutely terribly at a political conference um if you if you write political gags i well i um recommend this as a subgenre of humor <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no, no, no. bad party <laughs> conference jokes i promise you you'll you 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 won't run out of supply quickly well it's your it's your next book uh, <laughs> um your book, uh, Everything in Moderation, you believe that bringing more civility and nuance and compromise uh, into political life and life generally, does humour aid this process? I mean, obviously, you can be humorous and an extreme, you know, and one of the things is it's not, it's not party specific being having a sense of humour. Um, so, or, 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 um, so no, I, I would say not. I mean, it's part of, I do think, as I've said before, you know, that that um, having a certain sense of your own ridiculousness is important. And I think that is part of being moderate person um, because uh, you, it's harder then to become uh, an extremist who has, who's confident about their ability to remake the world. So definitely the, the, the the sensibility of my humour and the sensibility of my politics have something in common. But everybody's different. And to put it mildly, my sense of humour is not the only sense of humour. Um, and some, you know, there's there's absolute comic genius that's attached to all, you know, to any amount of extremism of all, uh, of all kinds. So, no, um, I wouldn't... So I think that it's interesting because one of the things I've reflected on is a question of, you know, right wing humour or left wing humour. I think um, you know, you've got to make you've got to be careful not to make fun of people out of their powerlessness effectively. Um, and I do think punching, punching yourself or punching up is funnier than punching down. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think I think uh, it can seem very cruel and nasty when you punch down. And uh, I, I think that's what you have to avoid. And I think that's when uh, politicians get into trouble. And I think people in business get into trouble is when they, you know, they, they hit the defenceless person. So I completely agree. If I asked you to write a business case for humor, Danny, what would you include? 
Okay, well, I think the the first thing that I would include in any uh, in any description, any discussion I have with a politician about a speech, okay, uh, the first thing I say is you've got to be authentic, uh, and you've got to try to um, to to say what you really think as the starting point, and then work from there. Uh, begin to think what you can say to the audience, why you can't say certain things, and that is the starting place for um, for any uh, case in business or any case that you might make to somebody else, and and therefore your humour plays a role in that. You, you should you should not try to be something you're not. Um, your jokes, if you use jokes, uh, they've got to be ones that you find funny. Um, uh, with a degree of uh, consideration as to whether other people will share that sensibility. Um, but they're part of um, authenticity, I think. Um, the, the second is that um, I think in any, um, in any walk of life, it makes sense to, uh, for things to be, um, for you to, to show a sense of self-deprecation, um, that you understand your own vulnerabilities, because people uh, reciprocate concessions. If they realise you're willing to say uh, things about their, their own, your own weaknesses, they'll be willing to accept theirs and criticisms you might have of theirs more readily. And I think that's um, important. And then don't forget also entertainment, right? You are, when you're making a case of any kind for a business to sell something or you're making a political point, um, telling a story, a compelling story is very important because people understand arguments through stories and it relates to them. And humour has a very important part in storytelling as well. And so um, unquestionably, if you're giving a, a hard message, you, you do want to try to keep the audience with you and to divert people uh, and taking, making some, taking some trouble to make your stories uh you'll make your pieces amusing your speeches amusing is part of that and the audience finds it flattering um they realize you've taken trouble uh, they like you more all those things are very helpful um but you know you do have to understand your own limitations in, in joke telling uh it's very important that you test those to make sure that they are actually funny to other people not just yourself um and um that you don't uh you know say things that you then later regret just because you thought they were funny at the time i i, I think uh, they're brilliant points uh going back to the authenticity um how do people find that authenticity which is you know i, I suppose it's our jobs to help them find that but isn't that one of the hardest things is people um can't find uh, who they are, uh, or at least can't project who they are in normal life onto a business stage or a politics yeah. stage. I think they start off in the wrong place, right? They start with um, who other people are and wanting to sound like other people. And I think starting with yourself, I mean, it's, it's hard, but every, well, I, one of the things that my editor sometimes says to me is, oh, well, Danny, you like everybody, right? And that is a little bit true. I, I do, I tend to like people. Um, and so very, very few people are completely unwinning um, if they were truly themselves. And sometimes I see people get into trouble by being, trying to be something they aren't or more than they are, or kind of sometimes they end up being less than they are. I do think um, not everybody's, equally funny you don't have to I wouldn't re don't reach for it too much because then it just doesn't work um but 
most people are, you know, kind of uh, wryly amusing. And if they're willing to kind of be vulnerable enough to show their humour, um, which is part of being vulnerable enough to be to show their authenticity, then um, then they can be funny. I, I love the fact that you say that your editor says to you, Danny, you like everybody, because I have a theory. Um, and from a psychological standpoint, because I walk into every room assuming that everyone is lovely, because what's the alternative? The alternative is what what causes mayhem is that you go, I've heard he's a bit of a bastard. And so therefore I start to react as, and as soon as you pull a face, which may be an innocent face, I go there, there's my proof. Whereas if you go in presuming everybody's got good intentions and is lovely, that that works. I've had an interesting, an interesting experience on social media um, where I respond to people who are being horrible as if they hadn't been horrible and are actually lovely. And at least half the time, I wouldn't say it was more than that, but half the time, um, by the end of the conversation, they're being quite lovely. Um, and... Um, quite often we have a sort of expectation in other people that they won't be um and actually that's one of the things that produces them not being so it is a bit probably i am a bit probably of a uh fool myself a little bit about people's qualities and maybe it's a tiny bit naive but i'd rather be that way and i think actually uh, it's a very smart way to be because i think that the reciprocity comes across you know people you're, you're nice to someone they do tend to feel that they should be nice back and, and the longer you keep that up there so that's something for our audience to take away um we come to the part of the show danny called quick fire questions quick fire questions who's the funniest business or political person that you've met uh well, as a team william hague and this will surprise a lot of people george osborne who's the most brilliant mimic and very funny. Oh, really? Well, I didn't expect that answer. Yes. Oh, well, we, uh, if he's funny, we should have him on the uh, humorology. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give him a call and tell him you recommended him. What book makes you laugh? I should say, um, actually, the answer to that is obvious. Catch twenty two. I thought Catch twenty two was absolutely brilliant. You know, Joseph Teller's comment when Joseph. someone said to him, uh, "You've never written a book as uh, good as Catch twenty two and he said, uh, "Yeah, you're quite right, but neither is anyone else." <laughs> that, that's brilliant. No, oh, I've never heard that quote, but it's fantastic. What film makes you laugh, Danny? Oh, um, Annie Hall, um, and uh, I love when Harry met Sally. Virtually, I can virtually uh, dictate that film to you in a kind of boring way that that guy does in Sliding Doors. You know, when he's repeating all the Monty Python. Yeah, Annie Hall, Annie Hall, and uh, and and um, when Harry met Sally. Uh, Annie Hall is just full of brilliant one-liners. Like, I, uh, honey, there's a spider in the bathroom the size of a Buick. Yes, just why don't love... you get? Uh, you've got a copy of the National Review. Why don't you get? William F. Butley to kill the spider. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And and the scene in the VW uh, when when he when he's she's driving really erratically and he goes, "It's okay, we can walk to the curb from here." Yeah, absolutely, that's brilliant. And then there's, uh, yeah, and uh, 
while your your uh, family was doing that, mine was being raped by Cossacks. I, I thought that it was very, very good, that film. That's right, yeah. That, that's the most fun I've ever had without laughing. There's also a line from that. Um, what is not funny, Danny? I don't like toilet humour. Never, ever laugh at it. So even and, as a was that was the seven year old uh, as the Jesuits no, no. would say, Danny was not laughing at uh, farts. N never, not when I was seven, not now. Ah, that's, that's extraordinary. Weird. It is, yeah. I in fact, it completely bewilders me. I can't. I don't find it funny, and I can't. I don't understand why other people find it funny at all. But um, and I realise it's just a missing chip. But there you go. There you go. Um, what word makes you laugh, Danny? Oh, isn't that that thing with... Uh, I should say that thing about Neil Simon has in uh, that fantastic film, The Sunshine Boys, which could have been named, which is that anything with a K, words with a K in it are funny. <laughs> I think that's which is funny. why a spider the size of a Buick is funnier. Pickle yeah. is funny. Pickle tomato, is funny. tomato isn't funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, Neil Simon, no, I completely, I Neil remember Simon. the Neil Simon. Can I just recommend anyone who's interested in the craft of humour, the Neil Simon's memoirs, particularly the first volume, but they're amazing. They're oh, really, really well, there good. you go, a book recommendation as well. Um, you've got a master's degree. Uh, you're a, a, a very, very uh, prominent journalist. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Oh, either would be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to pick. Um, I, I uh, even quite funny or quite clever would be would be uh, nice. Um, but the worst thing is unfunny. I I, I think stupid would be uh, the way of choosing. I can't choose clever or funny, but I can say that I would rather be called stupid than unfunny, right? Because unfunny is like the most embarrassing thing. That means you tried to make a joke and people didn't laugh. Horrendous. So unfunny would. Uh, that's my way of answering your question. Okay, no, no, that's same. And finally, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. Yeah. What is it? Okay, dear Roy Castle, I found a black disc with a hole in it at the bottom of my garden. Is this a record? <laughs> that's one for the older members of our audience. Danny, thank you so much for being a wonderful, amusing, brilliant guest on the Humorology podcast. Thank you. I really loved doing it. It was great. But the, the pressure of uh, people listening to it, thinking, I hope this is going to be funny, was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Good job you were. <laughs> the Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 